from Miss Mel. <laughs> Please stay in your seats this morning. Mel? Let's just go home now. Thank you, Mel. You are such a blessing, you and your mom. Thank you, thank you. If you have your scriptures this morning, if you have your scriptures, get your Bible, hold it up. There's everybody's holding the Bibles up, right? Look at that. That's beautiful. Okay. I didn't advertise that. 
Thank you, brother. Uh, yes, we've got our sword in our hands and we're ready to do battle, indeed. And uh, praise God for that. We're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we're just uh, a year and what, eight months, six months, whatever it is, in, a year and six months in, at the end of this month, I guess, into our work in the book of Ephesians. And uh, we've got just started on the fifth chapter. We've got the fifth and sixth chapter to go. Let's read just a few verses here, uh, set our hearts towards this. I'm going to work on the second verse this morning. Um, it uh, goes so good together with verses 1 and 2. And as I said, it sets up uh, the rest of the book uh, in my heart that uh, it becomes very practical. God is giving us ways to live, to walk in love. And uh, Paul finishes and, and, and the Lord finishes with the admonition to finally be strong in the Lord and then the strength of his might. So there's a great emphasis here, uh, as I said last week, on not only on masculinity, but as in Jesus being our representative and or our example of how to live this second verse and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we see that through the rest of this book. We know that from all of scripture, but um, let's spend a little time here this morning. Verse one, chapter five, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Those things are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who has covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Well, those are strong words, aren't they? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were them, were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, wake up, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not like an unwise person, but as a wise person, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, my heart is full of your truth. Uh, bless us with that this morning, Father. Go beyond my simple ways and speak directly to the hearts of your people. Speak directly in a way that we can work and live and do and be what you've called us to be. That we can love like Jesus loved. That's the admonition this morning. 
and walk in love as Christ loved us. Teach us that this morning, Father, as we go through these, this time together. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever notice the world, the great need in the world is to understand true love. I'm convinced this morning, biblically, um, that lost people do not know how to love. And we did not know how to properly love until we knew who God was. Because it's at that fulcrum point where we truly understand who God is, that we truly know how true love is, that we understand that, uh, that love is something that's really um, outside of us in a, in a sense because uh, we as sinners were only loving ourselves. Well, we loved our families, don't get me wrong. We had a love for them, but it's not near like the love that we've experienced or expressed after knowing the one who is love. God is love. And we can't know love until we know God, the one who is love. And God is saying in verses 1 and 2 that we should be imitators of him. In other words, that we should love as him like his beloved children. Just like your children act like you, you should act like your heavenly father and walk in love like Christ loved us. And there's six points here I want to make this morning. It shouldn't take, what time's the game start today? <laughs> you see those in verse 2. You see them in their admonition. Walk in love, number one. How do we walk in love? As Christ, number two, uh, gave himself up, number three. For who? For us, number four. As a fragrant offering, number five. And as a sacrifice to God, number six. Walk in love, just like Christ did. He gave himself up for us. He was a fragrant offering to God, a sacrifice to God. Walk in love. What does that mean? Well, as I told you, I'm, I'm reasonably sure that the world does not know what love is. Because if you ever notice that the world doesn't love what we love, beloved, the world doesn't love the church or they'd be in the church. The word doesn't love the word of God or they'd read the word of God, right? The word doesn't love justice. The world doesn't love justice or they would do justice and mercy. The world does not love truth or a lot of the things that we see being perpetrated as truth and justice would never be perpetrated. But as Christians, we can love these things because we have the love of God. The world settles for a sentimentality. It's a cheap knockoff of love. You ever seen the commercials where they, you know, they sell diamond rings that are carbon zirconium, whatever, right? I don't think that mineral even exists, but they sell them as diamond rings and they look like a lot like diamond rings, but they're not diamond rings. And the world chases after a sentimental type of love that they I believe, believe they believe it's a true love. They, they want to believe it's a true love, but once they go after those things, those things are empty. They don't give what the heart yearns and desires for, and they don't have any way to understand what to get the heart yearns and desires for because they don't know God. That's what their heart yearns and desires for is God. That's the only thing that can fill that void, but they chase after many things. In many ways, it's like a little child crying, a nonverbal child crying because something is wrong. They're hungry, they're wet. They can't tell you those things, but they yearn for those things, and it will not stop until what meets that need is given to them. That's how the world yearns for love. They go after many perverted different things. And sentimentality is one of the things that is replacement for love. And it 
does not replace love because it cannot replace love. The definition of sentimentality, if you haven't looked that up lately, brings in an emotional state. It's being overly or dramatically emotional or nostalgic. And that's a tough place to be when you're wanting to find true love. And nostalgia is often characterized by exhibiting a happiness and a sadness that goes with a time that was better than the times today. And a lot of times I told the Sunday school this this morning that older folks are bad about this. I remember the good old days. And they say that because they look back and harken back, and even I do this, to a time when I was much younger. But I don't know that those were the, such the good old days in as much as where there were hard times. It's just that we weren't old enough to understand them. And after you've lived in the world 50, 60, 70 years, you get the environmental buildup from the world. And it even drives you further to seek love. It's a, naive, it's a little bit being naive that that is what fuels you. And the reason that sentimentality works so well as a replacement for love, you know, it just, uh, it's like a Happy Meal. Sentimentality replaces love like a Happy Meal. You're, you're happy because you were hungry, and now you're not hungry. But you're going to be hungry again. And the happy you had when you got the Happy Meal is no longer there because you're hungry. And that's just how the human desire is. I'm telling you, beloved, we lost that whenever we found Christ. We found a true love, and we found out what true love is. And the world's love, the reason they don't like the things that we don't like, is because it deals with a couple more words that I want to bring into you here this morning. You ever heard the word empathy and sympathy? Boy, does the world get this confused. And just a short lesson here will help you keep that from being confused this morning for you. The world is all about empathetic love. Hey, that little boy wants to become a man. Let's give him everything he needs to be, or become a girl. Let's give him everything he needs. Let's give him surgery. Let's give him hormones. The little girl wants to become a little boy. Let's do a double mastectomy and a hysterectomy and give her hormones so that she starts looking and acting. But that's empathy and not sympathy because the difference here is simple. Sympathy sees somebody drowning in their sin. Let's call it a lake. They're drowning in the lake. And sympathy stands on the firm foundation and throws out a lifeline so that the person can be saved from whatever they're doing. Empathy says, I'm going to come in and hold your hand while you drowned. You see the difference? One of those things is loving and the other thing is not. And I know you know the difference, but that's, look at our world. That's what they're doing. That's exactly what our world is doing. They get empathy and sympathy. Empathy is a very important thing for a mom to have for a child. Because you're up at 2 a.m. for the fourth time with a colicky baby. You better have some empathy. Amen? Right? We've all been there with our children. Some of them more than others. No. Empathy is a great ethic in a mother for the way she takes care of a child. The love that a mom has for a child is exactly what it's supposed to be. But at some point that child grows up and mom has to become a, a disciplinarian as well. And the love changes. That's what's missing in our world today because they don't know the God of that. Empathy in the, in, the, in the fact of transgenderism has started a revolution of what we see. Empathy has caused 
all of the inner cities to look like they look. We let people live like they want to live and we don't require anything from them or we don't throw them any kind of a lifeline because we don't love them the way that God loves them or that we would do that hard work that's required. At the height of empathy, we're only helping them to kill themselves and to be feathered in their sin. It's an outlandish argument that the abortion lobby makes. It's my body, my choice. That's what empathy gets you. Thinking nothing of the child that's murdered in the womb. Thinking nothing 10 years down the road of the transgender girl into a boy and the social problems and difficulties that'll cause in the mind of that child. Thinking nothing of those things, empathy says if you love them, let them pursue what makes them happy. How about this one? Abortion is healthcare. That's the most empathetic statement, but it's never love. You know why? Because sin is never love. It's sin. The world, not knowing what love is, calls it love, just like gay marriage and transgenderism and inner city violence. The world, not understanding love, chases after these things because they believe their love and their hearts yearns for, as they yearn for true love, they don't understand and they're like a small child, don't knowing what they need, but all these things will end in death. Sin, I have this old saying, sin becomes more sinful once you finally sin that sin. I think the right way to say it, the sin you're contemplating sinning becomes much more sinful once you sin the sin you've contemplated sinning. And that's how sin works. It looks and it makes you think that you should desire something. It looks good on the outside. The fruit in the garden looked good to Eve, but once she sinned that sin, it had a world of effect. It had a world of guilt and shame that came along with it. The young lady getting ready to go into the clinic, desiring to get out of her immediate problem, saying that it's just a clump of cells. We're going to remove them from my body. And once she sins that sin, she's contemplating sinning. All the guilt and shame comes down right on top of her. And it's such a load. She'll never forget it for the rest of her life. She can be forgiven of it, but she will never forget it for the rest of her life. It works that way for the woman and the man. Homosexuality is the same. Homosexuality so changes and brings guilt and shame into the young man's life. If you watch some of the YouTube of some of the kids that have gotten out of this, but it brings such shame to the young man's life, it traps them for the rest of their adult life. That's empathy. That's the world's love. The world doesn't know what love is because it doesn't know who God is. The scriptures plainly tell us that God is love. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. It's right after 1 and 2 Peter. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8. First John chapter 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's definitive, isn't it? I don't have to spend a lot of time here, do I? Those, those words are as crystal clear as a bell this morning. Love is for, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It's not from man. It doesn't start in man. 
Its seed is not grown in man. It is given to us by God. We have to know God to know true love. Otherwise, the world is going to do what it always does, and it's just going to pervert love to such a way that it's sentimentality, and it turns into empathy. It turns into, and then when it's fully grown, it becomes sin and death. The reason the world loves different things than we do is because they don't know who God is. Isn't that simple? Love comes from God. Why? Verse 8. Anyone who does not love God does not know good, know God because God is love. And the word knowledge there is important. No. And this is more than just an intellectual understanding because most people would give you that they have an intellectual understanding of who God is. This is a desirous heart knowledge. This is the regenerated heart that knows the truth about who God is. This is the person that's been changed, and this is the person that loves church. Uh, I had this conversation with a lady a couple weeks ago uh, about the message on the sign. We can put all the messages on the sign we want. We can put all the great things on Facebook and on T-shirts, but until a person's heart is changed, they will not love church. They will not love God's word until they know who God is. That, beloved, is just the very reason why we have to preach the gospel. We have to speak and be ready to tell and give an account of why we have hope. Because God is love, he loved me enough to send his son to die for me on the cross. Go down to verse 16 of that same chapter. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. There's no separation here. It doesn't say the world is our instructor on love, but Ephesians 5, 2 and 1 John 4, 16, 7, 8, and 16 is telling us specifically that love is what God says it is. Love is what God says it is. Someone who understands and knows what love is understands and knows who God is. The world doesn't love the things and and believe in love because they don't know God. We love the church, Bible, justice, and truth because we first love God. We love them. They don't even love themselves. That's the other dichotomy here is that we love the world, the people of the world, and they don't love themselves. That's how far this distinction goes. They don't love church. They don't love Bible. They don't love justice. They don't love the truth. They don't love themselves. Oh, they would tell you that they love themselves. That's how they want to go after whatever feels good because that's what love is to them. But because they don't know God, they don't truly love themselves. Do you see that? And they can't know God until we tell them and love them as God has called us to love them. We must love them the way God has called us to love them, like Christ loved us. And that's the example here. And that's why we can love the world even when they don't love themselves. Back to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. You should have it there in your scriptures. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That's what we're called to do. Walk in love as Christ loved us. That's the second point. As Christ. That's how we're to love. As Christ loved. Beloved, let me tell you this. The Bible never gives us an admonition to love without setting an example of what that love looks like or should be. You see that? 
The Bible never gives us an admonition to love without setting an example of the way in which we should love. Here the Bible expressly says to walk in love as Christ loved us. The premise of biblical love is just the opposite of worldly love. Worldly love is about self-gratification, it's about self-desire, and the giving uh, of everything to oneself. Biblical love is just the opposite. Biblical love is about giving up oneself. If Jesus is the example here, we know how Jesus lived, and Jesus gave everything of himself so that we could know the God who is love. Walk in love as Christ, number two, in love as Christ. God's Kessid love in the Old Testament is promised to us that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. In Isaiah 54, 10, he says, I will never depart from you, my people. In Amos 5, 15, he says, hate evil, love good, establish justice. To do these things, we must know the God, the God of the Old Testament, the God whose love never lost us or forsake us. But perhaps one of the best places you can see these two things intersect is John chapter 13. Turn over there with me just momentarily to John chapter 13. We're going to see a way that Christ's love that even much of evangelicalism perverts today. They turn it into empathy because the world turns it into empathy. John chapter 13. Let's go there. You remember this passage. This is the beginning of the end portion of John, the farewell passage. It encompasses chapters 13 through 17. And it's Jesus at the feast of the Passover when he has this private time with his disciples. And a lot of people will call this the foot washing passage. And that's what Jesus does, right? He washes. How many of you have washed somebody else's feet? Well, a couple of you have. That's interesting. Why did you do it? You don't have to answer that this morning. <laughs> yeah, you can always count on Bobby. Read this passage with me just a little bit. This is how, this is how our consciences get bind to the world. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, how was Jesus going to depart out of the world, beloved? The cross. Somebody said the cross. That's right. When he knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, we get an interesting example of what love is. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, Jesus is our example. And what did Jesus do here uh, to love them to the end? What is the scripture point, uh, point to here as a portrayal of what this love, how it manifested itself? Foot washing. Is that it? Careful, I'm catching you in a trap this morning. No. The foot washing was just an example. Everybody knows this passage, so I'll jump to this. The foot washing is an example of Christ being willing to die for his people. The foot washing, as he'll tell Peter when he he tells Jesus, he said, no, I will never let you wash my feet. And Jesus says, if, you don't, if I don't wash you, you won't be clean, Peter. The foot washing just points to a greater metaphor. The, excuse me, the foot washing is just 
a metaphor pointing to a greater reality. And that is that Christ died on the cross to wash us clean of our sins. But here's how the world will take this. They'll take it and they'll have churches do this. Now, I'm not against this. It's also a beautiful picture of how to serve one another. But that's not the illustration, the, the ultimate illustration that Jesus is making. His ultimate service to us was his death for us. And churches wanting to put empathy in here will literally wash people's feet. Will literally wash people's feet when it's about washing them from their sins. So love is a very important ethic that we've got to get right because we place the emphasis on washing feet and service and miss the fact that Jesus is washing us clean of our sins. The metaphor is pointing to the greater reality. And Jesus is going to say it in John chapter 15, verse 13. You can read it there with me. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this Excuse me, I'm in chapter 14. I need to be in verse, chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 13. I'm sorry. Beginning at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I commanded you to do. Amen. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lays life down for his friends. All of John chapters 13 through 17 is pointing to the propitiation that Christ would make, and that being the fact of love. As Christ loved us, he's calling us to love those um, that, we, that are our brothers and sisters. I read that passage from 1 Corinthians this morning but it's worth going back to and just reminding you of a few things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Indeed, Love never ends. Beloved, this is what we're called and the way we're called to love our neighbors. The world doesn't have a true love for their neighbors because they don't know this Jesus Christ. They're not living as Christ, right? They want, they are not called to walk in love. They're not living as Christ. They're not willing to give themselves up like Christ. So we love our neighbors. We love our enemies. Men are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church. We're called over and over to walk in love and let all that we do be done in love. And that's exactly what we're getting an example of here is Jesus in Ephesians 5, 2, living as Christ lived and loved us. So to know love is to know the cross. Paul takes this further. It's not enough just to know who Christ is. It's to know what Christ has done. Because as we continue on in Ephesians 5, 2, he ties all of this to the cross. Jesus, do you see it there in verse 2? Gave himself up. 
We're called to walk in love as Christ and gave himself up. Number three, he gave himself up. And that's the gospel, that Jesus who came from heaven, who lived a perfect sinless life in this world, who was tempted by every sin, emptied himself, not taking to account anything that he was God, but he became in the form of a servant, of a slave, the word is properly slave. He became a slave, he became a servant to us, and that he became a man so that he could die as a man to take away the sins of man. That's what love is, that he gave himself up, and that's why love has to see the cross to understand what love is. Because true love, beloved, is love that has nothing to gain from its object. Jesus had nothing to gain from loving us. He did it for the glory of God. The world doesn't understand that. The world makes fun of that, right? Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are dying. But to us, but to us, beloved, we love that cross. We cherish that cross because it's in that cross we experience the love of God and the mercy and the grace of God. He gave himself up for us. You see, there was nothing in the object. There was nothing lovely in the object. If I was the object of Christ's love, his love was not born out of who I am as an object. Do you see that? It was because he is love. He died for us. He emptied himself for us. He was tested with every sin so that he could die for us and bleed for us and pay for us. Verses 4 through 5 in John 17 tells us specifically, and if you're still in the book of John, if not, I'll just write it to you. Jesus says, beginning in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. That's eternal life. The knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of God that saves us. It's the knowledge of God that teaches us what love is. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus goes on to say this. This is his motive. I have glorified you on the earth. I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's important. I'm going to tie this into the end because it's the work that God gave you to do is the way that you glorify God. If you will empty yourself as Christ did, you can love like Christ did. We've each been given something to do by God. Christ said, I have glorified you in the work that you gave me to do. His work was what? It was to die on that cross and earn eternal life for all of those that God would call into himself, that is the church. Listen to his words. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Oh, Father, now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus' glory was that cross, and it was because it glorified the Father. And because it glorified the Father, and because he lived a perfect life, and because he gave himself up, Paul goes on to say that it was a fragrant offering. Can you imagine? The scriptures portray a father in heaven, and as the sacrifices are burned on the altar, the smoke goes up, 
and unto the Father it's a fragrant offering. How much more fragrant the offering of Christ on our behalf. You see, now we're getting into love, aren't we? He didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. He did it to glorify the Father. This is the ultimate ethic of love. It's not motivated by the object. It's not motivated by its own glory. It's love for the sake of love because God is love. He did it to become a fragrant offering, a fragrant pleasing offering. And that is Christ's life. His death satisfied our sins. It was pleasing to God. It's such a selfless love that pleases God. That's what Paul is pointing to here because he's using Christ as the example. He doesn't leave it open for our interpretation. He says we're to walk of love as Christ walked in love as, and to give ourselves up as Christ gave himself up for others, for us as Christ did. And that becomes what before God, beloved? A fragrant offering. And, oh, we're getting here. Stick with me. Let's go to Genesis chapter 8, just a few more minutes. Genesis chapter 8. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. I have to remind myself sometimes because I start reading the wrong chapter. Genesis 8, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. You guys know where we're at. The flood had came. The waters were receded. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from their youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What a promise that is. Well, if that promise was made on Noah's offering of every clean animal there before God, think about the promises that are received in Christ's offering to God. Think about that aroma in the nose and the nostrils of the Father. I'm convinced to understand and know love is to understand offering and sacrifice. And to understand offering and sacrifice is to understand the ultimate offering and sacrifice that was given on behalf of the sinner through the Son, Jesus Christ. It has to do with tithes and offerings. And you think, oh man, the preacher's going to start on money now. Somebody say amen, please. See, in the Old Testament, they talked about a tithe, and we talk about tithes and offerings today. We're going to collect them at the end of the service. We've got envelopes for those to be given at the end of the service. And I think in the understanding the difference between tithe and offering, we understand the difference between worldly love and godly love. Beloved, a tithe is tenth portion. That's what the word means, tithe. Did you learn that in vacation Bible school? Okay, I'm the only one. Tithe means tenth portion. Literally, the word means one-tenth. And that's what God required of the worshiper in the Old Testament. That's what he requires of us today. 
He requires for you to give what is due. And God doesn't need your money, beloved. It's not about the money. You understand that? It's not about the money. It's about something much greater than that. God has the cattle on 1,000 hills, beloved. He created all the heavens and the earth. He does not need your money. It's about your heart. He says, take 10% and give it back to the church and live on 90%. And I'm telling you, just the other day, I had somebody in my office. I won't take too long with this, but it's an, it's an interesting illustration on how wrong we get this. They were crying about their financial life. The first thing I do is ask somebody, what do you spend per month on cell phones? And then I always ask them secondarily, what do you give to the church? You know what? We spend more money on cell phones and cable TV than we ever give to the church. We get the tithe thing all messed up, and because of that, the offering thing is even worse. You see, a tithe is required. It's what God asks to give you back. It's a test of your heart. But an offering, beloved, is offering is something that out of the depth of your heart you give to God. It's not required. It's love. It's above and beyond. And God has given us all something to give. Every individual is unique. Christ is our example. And we're called to walk in love as Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice to God. Each one of us are called to give that offering to God. Each one of us have been given something. I, I have this, uh, it comes from 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 7, and I won't go there now, but it's this little saying that I often use. It's not what you have to give. It's not about what you have to give. It's why you give what you have. It's not about what you have to give. It's why you give what you have. Do you see the different tone there? Do you see that one of them is a tithe and one of them is an offering? Do you see that God has given, listen, the widow gave two mites and she gave more than anybody else because it was everything she had to live on. It's about why you give what you have. God gave you time, talents, and treasures, beloved. He gave you something to give to him so that he could be glorified, and that is Love. Whenever we turn our lives over to his work in our lives, whenever we turn ourselves and give our lives up so that we can glorify, glorify, glorify God, that is love. Your life can either be dedicated to you or dedicated to God. Look at the cross, beloved. It's all right there. Sacrifice, offering, love. And in that love, grace and mercy. In that love, grace and mercy. If you want to love others truly, as a Christian, look at Jesus. The Bible does not leave it open to the interpretation of man. But everywhere the Bible says and gives us an admonition to love, it gives us an illustration of how to love and the one who is love. Love like Jesus loved. Give yourself up as a fragrant offering to God so that others can know the love of God. That is the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus died on your behalf, beloved. 
he never complained. He was reviled, but he never reviled back. He was beaten. He was rejected. He left glory to come to this place. He died the most gruesome of deaths on the cross of Calvary. This is what love is. To walk in love as Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Beloved, walk in love. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close today, the words of the Apostle buried deep in our hearts about what love is. And that love is justly put as the example that Christ has given us. Uh, he never deserved anything that he received here. But he did it all because he loved us. He gave himself up because he loved us. His whole life was an offering on our behalf because he loved us. Father, I, my heart breaks for the world who believes that love is, you know, the things of this world, the getting of their heart's desire because it's their hearts that desire and long for the love that they can only know in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Help us to be preachers of the gospel. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to love like Christ loved so that others will see that love in us. I pray and ask you to go with these saints in this day to love them, Father, with the perfect love of Christ and to give them that love in their hearts to share with others. Lord, I pray that in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, our men are going to come forward with the table.